So what makes a person great? As I prepared for this sermon, I tried finding a working definition of greatness according to what our world would call it. And there wasn't much to be found. Greatness can be a really relative thing. It's highly dependent upon a person's perspective. I tried Googling it, searching for articles on greatness. Everyone had a different idea of its definition. We had answers from who invented the wheel to Tom Brady. (laughs) Greatest of all time, right? (laughs) So what does the person who invented the wheel have in common with Tom Brady? You know, the dictionary definition of greatness is to have ability, quality, or eminence considerably above normal or average. So I think it's safe to say, for the purpose of this sermon, that someone great is an exceptional person with exceptional influence. Since 1928, Time magazine has chosen what they call the person of the year. This person is chosen based on their level of influence for the year prior. It should be someone great, right? Person of the year ought to be someone great, like the inventor of the wheel or maybe some of our favorite presidents, right? Of course, we would say that because greatness is relative. When I reviewed Time's choices, I saw, among others, Nixon after the Watergate scandal, Joseph Stalin twice. Throughout history, person of the year has ranged from Adolf Hitler to Martin Luther King Jr. So how could that be? How could MLK and Hitler both fit the category of great? How could they both be person of the year and get Time's most coveted cover. One uses influence to stir up hatred and murder millions of the Jewish people, and the other used his to fight for civil rights and equality for African Americans. One rose to greatness on the basis of self-elevation, exclusivity, and oppression, and the other on the basis of humility, inclusivity, and advocacy for the oppressed. And that's when it struck me that Yeah, the definition of greatness doesn't necessarily come with a qualifier, good or bad. For us, it simply means exceptional people with exceptional influence and impact on the world around them, whether for good or for bad. So time is perfectly within the bounds of reason to choose the people they've chosen for person of the year. No one would ever argue that either of those men lacked influence. It's in the quality of their influence that we see the starkest difference. As you heard when Leanna read our passage today, the subject of greatness comes up among the disciples of Jesus. And we're going to find out that Jesus has his own definition of greatness, kingdom of God greatness. He gets to do that, by the way, because he's King Jesus. And this should come as no surprise to you, because if you've been with us through this series of Mark, we've seen, we've come to notice that Jesus turns things upside down in the most beautiful way. As we've made our way through Mark, we've seen him heal the untouchable, bring in the outsider, harshly correct the abusive but influential and corrupt religious leaders. Jesus does his own thing. So we're going to ask, what does Jesus call greatness? What does Jesus consider superior? Mark's going to show us three marks of greatness. We're going to look at elevation, inclusion, and protection. We're going to get into the details of all of those when we go through this passage, but I just want you to remember those three things, elevation, inclusion, and protection. 
Okay, so if you look with me at Mark 9, verse 30, we'll get started. Just remember that from last week, we're on the heels of Jesus taking his inner circle up to the mountain for them to see his transfiguration, Peter, John, and James. This is where he gives them a preview of the resurrection. And after that, he comes down and he casts out a demon that the other nine disciples couldn't handle. And so here we are in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So this is the second time of three times in Mark where Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. And it's a pattern that we see where Jesus pronounces this, and then he teaches a discipleship lesson to the twelve. After his first prediction, Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, no, that can't happen. You can't die. That's not what a king does. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on the things of God, but of man. So this time, they didn't understand either, but I think they were probably too afraid to ask. They're probably thinking, you know, Peter stepped in it last time. We're keeping quiet. But they don't entirely keep quiet because the discussion begins as they walk probably a ways apart from Jesus. Read with me in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Jesus tells them, I'm going to be handed over, killed, and I'll rise three days later. They don't get what that means. They're too afraid to ask. So they spark up a discussion, get into an argument about who's the greatest. Remember, I said last week we had three disciples who were in the inner circle that went up to the mountain with Jesus, nine who couldn't cast a demon out. So if there was ever a time that the disciples might want to try to establish a hierarchy of greatness, this would be a pretty rich time to do it. So who's the greatest? They ask, who does Jesus like best? Maybe even, who should be the leader if we lose him? You can picture it, can't you? Each of them presenting their cases, why they should be elevated above the rest. I was on the mountain. I met Moses and Elijah. I know the most. I'm the strongest. He trusts me the most. I knew him first, so I should be first. So Jesus asks them what they're talking about, and again, silence. He obviously knows because Jesus always knows. So he responds in their silence. Look with me at verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus doesn't call them out explicitly. He doesn't even rebuke them. He simply speaks to their question and he turns their notion of greatness on its head. Jesus' idea of greatness is not to be the first. It's not who has the best pedigree, the best resume, the best natural ability. It's not even who's in his inner circle of disciples. Jesus is saying that greatness means to be last, to be servant of all. It means to come down from the mountain and put the other nine losers ahead of you, to, to come down and serve them. It means one disciple striving to be the servant of the other 11 more than he strives to be served by them. 
means one disciple elevating the 11 above himself, regardless of whatever he might be able to use to claim greatness. Have you ever met anyone like this? Anyone who pursues kingdom greatness? They have, and his name is Jesus. To follow him is to be servant of all, to elevate others above yourself. And he goes on to give more detail. Look with me at verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking, in his arm, taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. So Jesus starts off by saying, If you want to be great, you've got to be the servant of all. Then to drive the point home, he brings in this child front and center. Why is he using a child as an example of whom the great ought to serve? Or more than that, he's using him as an example of what it means to receive God. Some might jump to our own cultural sentiment about children. They're cute. You know, they're innocent. They're helpless. Some might have gone so far as to say that examples, they're examples of humility and obedience which just shows you that they don't have much experience with them. (laughs) But really, to know what Jesus is doing, we've got to know how children were seen in the Greco-Roman world, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, and in ancient Israel. Children were helpless, yes, but they're also considered insignificant. They were an inconvenience. They were on the same or similar social level as slaves and servants, maybe even lower while they were kids because... They were less useful. So it would be highly unusual for Jesus to equate them with greatness. That's why in another passage of of the book of Matthew, Jesus' disciples shoo children away when they come to him. Why would Jesus give them the time of day? He obviously wants to spend his time with the greats, the elevated, not the lowly. In that passage, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And this is so Jesus We've seen him do this when he healed the leper in the first chapter of Mark, a man who wasn't even allowed in the city walls because of his disease. We've seen him do this when he healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman, a woman considered unclean by nature of her ethnicity. And he identified her in front of everybody as a child of God. And now he does it with this child. Jesus elevates the low. Just like the other examples, this would have been shocking to the disciples. Totally unexpected. He elevates a child to the place of value previously unknown. And he does this in front of the 12 who we would think should be the most valued based on their experience and their closeness to Jesus. The kingdom is bigger than you and others should be more important than you. Imagine what it must have felt like for this child. Imagine the memory for him in a crowded room with at least 13 adults, easily overlooked. And Jesus takes him and he puts his arm around him. And we're talking an embrace, a welcoming embrace. And he tells everyone, if you receive him and children like him, you receive me and you receive God. This is approval. This is bestowing of dignity. This is elevation This is love. What a momentous scene. I wish we got to see more of of what might have happened after that child's life, that that Jesus took him aside like 
I wish he wrote something later on. You know, life after Jesus welcomed me because that must have been a big moment in his life. Does anyone here ever feel lowly, insignificant, vulnerable, right? All of us, unseen, unheard. Maybe you've played the game of striving for greatness and you lost. Maybe you had plans for your life that your significance hinged upon and those plans never came to fruition. And now you feel low. Well, Jesus welcomes the low. Jesus elevates the low. Jesus loves the low. Because Jesus elevates the low and calls us to do the same, we should also be asking, who am I overlooking? Who do I deem unworthy of my attention? Who are the low around me? Who are the ones that society calls insignificant? And how am I serving them? How am I becoming servant of all? Jesus says, when you receive them, you receive him. You receive the one who sent him because he is God. Yet he came as the lowly. He came as the insignificant. We just got done celebrating a holiday commemorating Jesus coming as what? A child, a baby. Jesus is the epitome of kingdom greatness. He's the king. And kingdom greatness is becoming the servant of all, elevating the least and the last. Now, Mark doesn't give us Jesus' disciples' response. We can only make an educated guess that they were again shocked into silence. But then the apostle John does speak, and he shifts the focus. Look with me at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. So John changes the focus from children, but you can still see that the subject is still stuck on a hierarchy of greatness. Someone who wasn't one of the 12 disciples was casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they tried to stop him because, well, he wasn't following them. We can't have everyone out there casting out demons in Jesus' name. They should be following us. Kingdom greatness elevates the low, fine, but we still have exclusive rights to the name of Jesus, right? It's not entirely unreasonable that they would feel that way because they were the ones who spent most of the time with him. They've seen all the miracles. They've put in the time. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So Jesus says, don't stop him. It's okay. He's allowed to do that. He's allowed to use my name. Why? Because if he's using the name of Jesus, doing the work of Jesus, why would he speak evil of him afterward? Why would he damage the message of Jesus? What shame could he bring to Jesus' name by obeying him, doing his work? Now, there are examples in the Bible of people using the name of Jesus as some kind of incantation, but these are people who don't even believe in Jesus. They think that there's some kind of magic in his name, attempting to gain some kind of power with no relationship to Jesus himself. But according to Jesus, this isn't one of those instances. 
This guy's a believer who's heard, he's received, and he's gotten to work. Doesn't it feel less special when everybody can do it? I mean, if I were to base my significance exclusively on the superiority of my own spiritual or physical ability or mental ability, and then I see that somebody else has it, maybe they're even more successful at using it than I am. Maybe a better preacher. Well, then I don't feel so great. You mean anyone can do this? And remember those nine disciples who couldn't cast out a demon, and then we have this random guy out there who's killing it. (laughs) Kingdom greatness is inclusive, not exclusive, at least not in the sense that greatness is exclusive in our world, where access is limited to the one with the pedigree, to the one with the resume, the one with the ability. Let's also remember that Jesus' disciples are the lowly, fishermen, tax collectors, and sinners. For the believer, it's so easy to forget how we came to Jesus, where we were, broken, in need, and low. So again, John is missing the point. He's looking to the uniqueness of his position as a marker that distinguishes him and the 12 from other disciples of Jesus. Leave this type of ministry to the greats. And again, the words of Jesus should echo To be first is to be last and servant of all. And rather than find out how they could even serve this brother, they try to stop him because he's an outsider. Imagine how much the 12 apostles would have had to offer him as he's out there solo. To become servant of all is to serve and include the outsider. Jesus says whoever isn't against us is for us. And that's not some wishy-washy way of saying if no one gives you any trouble, they're included in the kingdom. There are two clear categories, against and for, and the inclusion, while not based upon spiritual ability or social status, is still based on the name of Jesus. Jesus is the basis of inclusion. So the point he's making is that to access him is not limited by any factor. To believe in Jesus is to gain access. To follow and serve like him is to experience greatness. Let's look at what he says next in verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus again draws their attention away from the glamorous and towards the menial, the seemingly little things. You're worried about including others who do great works in my name? I'm saying even if somebody gives you a cup of water in this dry and arid land to quench your thirst, even if someone gives you a drink in my name and because you belong to me, there's reward for that person. Notice he mentions a reward when talking about the simple service and not when talking about casting out demons or miracles. To be first is to be last, and kingdom greatness includes the outsider. So Jesus responds to John's detour, again, correcting this false idea of what it means to be great, and now he brings the focus back to children, back to the low, to the insignificant, and his tone becomes very serious. Look with me at this next section, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones to be who believe in me to sin, 
It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So this is like one of those moments you hear about when a loved one gets into a new relationship and you're happy for them, but you tell the new person, listen, this is my friend, my sister, my brother, whatever. I'll hunt you down and I'll let you fill in the rest. Jesus is getting protective. Children are to be protected. And Jesus, using them as this iconic example of vulnerability, is saying that the least and the last ought to be protected. That to cause one to sin, or as some translations say, stumble, is a grievous offense to God. Just a verse before this, we see reward for giving a small drink, and then we have this drastic illustration of consequence for the abuse of little ones and the vulnerable. A millstone is a huge disc of stone that was used to grind grain. They would use a donkey to move it across a circular track. So needless to say, it was very heavy. And it certainly would do the job at sinking you to the bottom of the sea. I mean, the concept of cement shoes hadn't been invented by the modern mobster yet, so Jesus was just working with what he had. But I think he probably would have said cement shoes if if it was now. The vulnerable, they're easy to deceive, easy to overpower, easy to oppress. You want to keep yourself from perpetrating evil against them? Put yourself last. Consider the last to be first. Become the servant of all. Stop thinking about how you should be first, about what you deserve. Let's remember who Jesus is talking to. Twelve disciples, 11 of which will go on to turn the world upside down with the gospel message. The truth is they're going to be more influential than they could ever imagine. Their influence reverberates into today. We're reading from a book written by a man who likely got his testimony from Peter, the apostle. Talk about what we would call greatness. Talk about an exceptional person with exceptional influence. And Jesus knows this, and he's warning the future leaders of his church against the abuse of power and against the pitfalls that come with their own sin and their own sinful desires to draw service toward themselves instead of extending it outward. They'll go on to know what it means to be servants of all. Most of them go on to be martyred just for sharing the message. But here's the point. The vulnerable are the most easily oppressed, and the venerable oppress most easily. Jesus is speaking to the latter. We're in a world where greatness doesn't depend on moral value, yes, but mass veneration. Influential people can do great good, and they can do great harm. And so he goes on in these next verses to tell them that it would be better for them to cut their limbs off than to sin, because there are terrible consequences for those who abuse the lowly, the vulnerable, and the insignificant. And Jesus is saying, the best way to prevent that in yourself is to avoid sin at all costs. The stakes are too high. So this is a timely passage because the news this week has been capitalized by the sentencing of a doctor named Larry Nasser a venerated doctor to all kinds of athletes and Olympians. And it turns out that for years, he had been sexually abusing those entrusted to his care. 
and even more disturbingly, in the name of and under the guise of medicine. So women and girls, they came forward, but they were repeatedly ignored because he was one of the best, untouchable, great. So were the ones who were in power, who hid those reports. One of the women that came forward was a Christian, and her name was Rachel Den Hollander. And as each of the 200 victims of his heinous abuse asked to get, were asked to give their victim impact statement before sentencing, hers was released last week. I want you to hear what she had to say, because it's true, it's profound, it's human, and it's so impacted by an understanding of God's value for the vulnerable. So I'm going to read a portion of this that comes after many of her words describing the horrific abuse she endured. And just before this section, she had remarked how the doctor had brought a Bible to the courtroom in order to gain pity from the judge and achieve a lesser sentence. She says, If the Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble, and you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Yeah. She expounded the words of Jesus with a perspective and passion that I could have never provided for you. And she displays a level of maturity and grace that I'm not sure I could ever muster up. Kingdom greatness protects the vulnerable. There's only one kind of greatness in Jesus' kingdom, and the king defines it. Kingdom greatness means elevating the low, including the outsider, and protecting the vulnerable. I want to point you back to the beginning of this passage when Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. There's unique wording in this prediction that's not used in the others. Jesus predicts being delivered, being handed over into the hands of men to be killed. Who handed him over? Oh, yes, one of the twelve one of the very 12 who argued about their greatness, one of the people who were sitting as he taught on kingdom greatness, Judas, who was described as helping himself to the money bag, a self-server. Who was he handed over to? Selfish, servant-amassing religious and Roman leaders attempting to maintain their positions of power and affluence, attempting to preserve their greatness. How was Jesus handed over? Like a vulnerable, defenseless 
child. Not because he had to be, but because as Paul says in Philippians, he chose to empty himself, taking on the form of a servant. He did not resist. He was silent before his mockers. Why did he do this? Because we are a needy people, vulnerable yet sinful outsiders. In our place, he was both the vulnerable child and the one who took the millstone. Paul says it like this, and we'll finish with this. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.